Welcome to Passages Voice. This episode was originally recorded as part of the digital speaker series, where we meet famous leaders in the church, business, and politics to discuss faith and leadership. To learn more, visit the Passages Leaders Network or follow us on social media at Passages Israel. Enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Scott Phillips here, Executive Director uh, at Passages. Welcome to this episode of the Passages Digital Speaker Series. We're so excited today and very honored to welcome our very special guest, Yossi Klein-Halevi. I'm a big fan. Thank you, Yossi, so much for being on with us today. Thank you. Uh, Yossi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He co-directs the Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, Jewish identity, and Israel. He writes for leading op-ed pages in North America, and his latest book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, is a New York Times bestseller. He's frequently quoted on Israeli, Middle Eastern, and Jewish affairs in leading media around the world, and he's one of the best-known lecturers on Israeli issues. Born in Brooklyn, he received his BA in Jewish Studies from Brooklyn College and his MS in Journalism from Northwestern University. He moved to Israel in 1982 and lives in Jerusalem with, wife, with his wife, Sarah, and they have three children. So welcome, Yossi. Um, everybody, uh, everyone, you. don't forget to put your questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Uh, if you're a Passages alumni and you'd like to join a live chat about our speaker, you can also do that on our Passages Leaders Network website. Yossi, um, we'd like to focus today on your bestseller, as we mentioned, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, where you explain a case for Israel and coexistence. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about this book first and uh, why you were inspired to write this. Well, so first of all, hi, everybody. And uh, really delighted to be with all of you. I'm a big fan of passages. I, I, I meet with uh, some of your groups in Israel, and I, I really just very grateful for the work you do. It's, it's substantive, it's deep, it's spiritual. It checks off all the boxes. Thank you, yes. So, uh, really, thank you. Uh, so, the book is really a series of letters to an imaginary Palestinian neighbor, literally on the next hill from where I'm sitting now in my study. I live in a, uh, in a building at the very edge of Jerusalem, where the last row of houses uh, before the West Bank. And on the next hill are two Palestinian villages. I can see them very clearly. At night, I hear the, the, uh, the call to prayer uh, as if it's resonating in my, in my living room. And one night, I, I was listening to the call to prayer. It was 3, 4 in the morning. I was having insomnia. And I, was, I started having this conversation in my head with my Palestinian neighbor. All of the things that I wished that Palestinians understood about us, that we understood about them, about their lives. And I found myself starting to write longhand, like, like, like an old fashioned letter, <laughs> and uh, dear neighbor. And it became a series of letters I couldn't stop writing. And I realized as I was writing this that I'd been waiting for, uh, for years, decades, to actually address my Palestinian neighbor directly. 
And the book um, was published about three years ago. I had to translate it into Arabic, put online for free downloading in Arabic. I invited Palestinians to read and to respond. And my hope was that just as I was explaining to Palestinians my people's narrative, our story about why we're here, why we came back home, why we consider this home, why, we, why we're not colonialists and invaders, but a native indigenous people returning home. I invited Palestinians to tell me their story. And people started writing to me, writing in response to the book. Mm. Uh, some of the letters were very angry. Some of them were hateful and some of them were terrific. And about a year ago, I published a paperback edition, a new, a new edition of the book. And I included an epilogue, letters from Palestinians uh, to their Israeli neighbor. Have you seen that edition, Scott? I have not actually seen that one, no. Uh, because this is, this, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of this edition. Because this is the first <laughs> book no. that actually brings together Palestinians and an Israeli in conversation about our mutually exclusive, irreconcilable narratives. Mm. There is no way Palestinians and Israelis will ever agree about what happened and why in 1948 with the founding of Israel and the birth of the refugee crisis. Who's responsible? Uh, I believe that the Palestinian side and the Arab world started this war. They believe that my side started the war. We will never agree about who's responsible for the state war of 1967. We're never going to agree on which side is responsible for the collapse of the peace process in, in the year 2000. And so mm. we've got, we, we, we have these cumulative arguments that, that are, and there's no way to resolve them. But what I was hoping to do in this book is model a conversation between two people who deeply, deeply disagree about almost everything, and yet can come together, listen to each other's stories, listen to each other's traumas, and try to figure out a way of accommodating each other's narrative. And in a way, you can take that as a metaphor for a two-state solution. This little land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea is going to have to somehow accommodate two people Claims. And so I'm not a diplomat, I'm not a politician, and what I can do in a sense is accommodate these two peoples within a language, within a language, a conceptual approach to peacemaking. And that's mm. what I try to do in the book. And, and the paperback for me is really, in some sense, the fulfillment of that vision of bringing all these disparate and, and frankly, antagonistic voices together. Mm. Mm. So sort of a follow-up to the first edition. I look forward to, uh, to reading the updated version, yeah. absolutely. Uh, just yeah. to give us a basis, you know, a basis for this whole conversation about Israel, the Jewish state and all of this, I think one question that comes to mind, if you could just summarize how the diaspora um, or uh, exile changed Jewish identity, and I think that's really at the basis of you know, what we want to talk about today? Oh, well, you know, the Jews are very strange people in, in many ways. Well, first of all, the fact that we're a people and a religion uh, confuses not just outsiders. Many Jews are confused by this. What are we exactly? And uh, what I try to explain in my book, which is really in some sense about Jewish identity, 
is um, how is it possible to be a Jew and an atheist at the same time? Now, you know, Scott, that if you're, if you're a Christian and an atheist, you're basically out of the game. Does it work? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And so we're this really strange religion where it does work because we're also a people. And what makes it even stranger is that the religion itself creates a category for non-believing Jews to nevertheless still be a part of, of the experience, to still be a yeah. part of the people. Of the people, yeah. Of the people. And, uh, and so, the, the, so that's one way we're strange. Now, when we went into exile, we lost a crucial component of peoplehood, which was our land. Uh, when you're living on a land and you're sovereign and you're a majority, it's very clear that you're a people. In the way that anyone who will visit Israel today will immediately understand, even if you can't quite figure out the theology, that, well, yeah, this is a people. They're, they're functioning as a people. They've got there are ethnicities from all around the world. Jews come from 100 countries. Come in all flavors, shapes, colors, uh, opinions, and we are a people. And, and, but when we went into exile, we, we, and we lost that, that intimate connection with the land, it had to be invented. It had to be reconstructed. And what the rabbis did, the, the, really these, these brilliant minds who recreated Judaism under conditions of, uh, of exile, was to place the longing for the land of Israel at the center of our religious life. Hmm. And we became a, a kind of vicariously indigenous people, if I could use that word. We weren't physically indigenous, but we were vicariously indigenous with the land that we had lost but never gave up. And, uh, and so wherever Jews were at, in any corner of the world, we would mark our holidays uh, in accordance with the natural rhythms of the land of Israel. Our harvest, our harvest festival was on the festival of uh, of tabernacles, which is in the fall. And the, uh, our festival of spring and renewal uh, was on Passover. It didn't matter if you were living in Australia and, you, and, you, and you, you have the opposite experience. It's not spring there. But when it's spring in the land of Israel, it's spring for Jews everywhere. And that's something that the rabbis really deeply uh, um, entrenched in, in exilic Judaism. So that, that Judaism in, in exile uh, was, was always, in a sense, on hold. We, Jews, I think, had a very rich life in exile, a very rich inner spiritual life, a rich communal life. Uh, but the heart of that life, and this is the anomaly of Judaism in exile, was a land that Jews were not actually physically living in. Now, what also makes this strange that if you take the 4,000 years of Jewish history, you'll see that for most of that time, we were actually living outside of the land of Israel. Now, there were always Jews living in the land, but not always as a majority. And once you, you, you get this expanded picture of what Jewish life actually is like, you realize how complicated the diaspora homeland 
dance really is because to be to be living in one place and yet connected vicariously to another that's part of the dynamic and the tension within Judaism. yeah just like in the passover seder you know it's uh, you mentioned passover it's always next year in jerusalem and that's been in there for a very long time and so that i think that's yes. a good illustration of your point there it's always you know even if they're living in australia or north america or wherever it's next year in jerusalem it's always it's always here yeah. you know and people ask me why did you move there you know you why did you leave new york and move to the middle east and you know my response is that you can't keep saying next year in jerusalem for thousands of years and then when jerusalem is suddenly within reality yeah not just not do it you know and and i felt that it was really important for the integrity of the jewish story that we don't only leave israel for jewish refugees who have nowhere else to go hmm. and and that it's, it's not only for holocaust survivors it's not only for jews who were thrown out of arab countries it's also for for jews who who had a, a pretty good life in the west you know this this is a place that, that we're rebuilding after 2,000 years. Mm. And I just couldn't keep away from the story to be here. I think that's great. It's a, perfect, it's a perfect actual segue into the next question we have here, which is, uh, what do you believe is Israel's case for a right to exist as a modern Jewish state? So first of all, I would say that Israel's right to exist is that it exists. And I don't mean to be flippant with my answer. I really mean that. Uh, <laughs> Australia, and I, I'm sorry to keep using Australia for whatever reason, but Australia has the right to exist even though it's only a few hundred years old and it's an artificial construct, but it now exists. Israel has roots that are thousands of years old. The question of whether Israel has the right to exist um, that's a legitimate question until May 14, 1948. 48, yeah. May 14, 1948 is the day that the modern state of Israel was reestablished, was, re was founded. And the, that, the moment that Israel became a state, that the Jews succeeded in this admittedly bizarre story, you know, there's no other people on the planet uh, that lost its land and kept faith with its land for thousands of years, which is an amazing story in itself. And then even more amazingly, 2,000 years later, manages to reclaim its land. There's nothing, there is no story like this. And, and, and it is a strange story. As, as a religious person, I see this in religious terms. Uh, I think one has to be careful not to take that too far because uh, it can really move in, in in unhealthy directions where, where, well, if God is in the story, then Israel is right no matter what. I think one has to be really careful about that. Uh, on the other hand, I, I, I look at this story and I say, well, for thousands of years, Jews believed that this was going to happen. There was no rational way this could have happened. How the, the most powerless people in history would manage to re-engather itself from a hundred countries back into a land that had lost thousands of years ago. It's, it's science fiction, and yet it happened. 
And so the moment that this story succeeded is the moment when the debate over whether it should happen came to an end. The fact that it hasn't come to an end drives me frankly crazy because what it means is that the longer we are an indigenous people again in this land, producing one generation after another of native-born Israelis, the more this process goes on, the more the world seems to be reopening the question about whether we have the right to be here. And my question is, at what point does it stop? Is it after 100 years? Is it after 200? Is, 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 is the model Canada? Uh, is it Australia? At what point do you have a right to exist, even leaving aside the fact that I think we have a much stronger claim to this land than Australia or Canada, or for that matter, less than? You know, we, we, we came back. We didn't, we didn't come. We were returning. And so this question of what is the right of Israel to exist is, um, I think it's, an, it's important to ask because that question is out there. We need to address it. But I also feel the very strong need to respond firmly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, th I think we wanted to, you know, get, get that response out of you for sure. That's, that's great. I think, um, fantastic. Uh, lots of questions for everyone to be thinking about there for sure. Um, so moving into sort of the modern, you know, current, obviously, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Recently, President Abbas declared he wishes to nullify many agreements with Israel and the U.S. based in large part on a lack of trust. For both Israelis and Palestinians, what do you believe makes a good, trustworthy peace partner? Really good question. I think that each side needs to make a very specific move. Uh, on our side, we need to freeze settlement building, settlement expansion, and recommit ourselves to a two-state solution. On the Palestinian side, their leadership needs to renounce the intention, which is repeated over and over again in Palestinian media and textbooks, of uh, erasing a Jewish majority state. And we need to see a firm commitment on the part of Palestinian leaders to accepting the permanence, the legitimacy of a Jewish majority state. And, you know, this is a very painful conflict. And there's, a, there's good reason why this conflict has eluded uh, evolution for so long. And, and the reason, I think, is because the diplomats are looking at the wrong place. They're looking at the very practical uh, consequences of this. Like we have to find a line on the map that both sides can live with. Uh, we, we need to figure out uh, what to do with, uh, well, with refugees, with settlements, all of those issues. Now, those are all very serious issues, but those are the consequences of this conflict. The root causes are what I would call the intangible issues, which is the right of each people to exist, the right of each side to call itself a people. Uh, the right of each side to self-determination, uh, the right of each side to define its own identity. 
And that's something that uh, uh, a majority of Israelis in the past were prepared to do, were prepared to recognize uh, the right of the Palestinian people to exist to national sovereignty. Over the years, the more this conflict goes on, I sense that majority weakening. On, on the Palestinian side, I don't believe there ever was a majority that accepted the legitimacy of the um, since writing your book, you've had the opportunity to meet several times with Palestinians for dialogue. Uh, what have you learned about their perspective? Yeah, one of those meetings was uh, under the uh, sponsorship of Passages. So, uh, what, I've, what I've learned in my face-to-face -face encounters with, with Palestinians, and uh, this book has really opened up friendships uh, for me on, uh, in Palestinian society. And it's really been a, a great blessing in, in many ways. I would say that what I've learned most of all is not necessarily anything new about the conflict because I've, I've lived this conflict for many years and I've lived it in many different ways. Uh, I worked for many years as a journalist and so I had to be somewhat objective. Uh, I have lived this conflict as, a, as an Israeli, as a citizen, as someone who chose a side. I was a soldier uh, in Israeli army. I've, uh, I've lived this conflict as a reconciliation activist. Uh, I've lived this conflict as a religious pilgrim. I spent a year uh, going into Palestinian society many years ago, uh, into Islam and Christianity, into the faiths of my neighbors, and wrote a book about that. The Entrance to the Garden of Eden, a book that was published many years ago. And so I've experienced this conflict in, in, in many, many of its aspects, in many contradictory ways. So I can't say that I've really, that I learned very much new factually, but definitely what I learned again was the depths of Palestine. Of, of, of the emotional dislocation of Palestinians, the deep sense of grievance, of wound. And I believe that at least part of that wound uh, is the fault of the rejectionism of Palestinian leaders. I don't, fall, I don't let my leaders off the hook by any means, but I do believe we could have had peace at different stages of this conflict had Palestinian leaders said yes, to Israeli overtures. Uh, I wish we had overtures today, we don't. This is not a government uh, of, uh, of overtures. Uh, Netanyahu is not a leader uh, for overtures. Um, but uh, the reality that I've learned, again, is to take the Palestinian wound to heart. It's very easy for people on both sides of this conflict at the other side out because there's so much accumulated anger, uh, much of it justified on both sides. There's so much mistrust on both sides, which again, I think is justified for both people. Uh, and, and it's so, for many years, I didn't want to hear about Palestinian suffering. I didn't want to hear about the occupation. My response was, ask your leaders why they don't make peace with us. And that's a very, kind of normative Israeli response, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's good enough. I have, a I have a responsibility 
as the stronger party, as a religious person, as somebody who deeply believes that God is in this story, to do better. Whether or not I have a peace partner on the other side, I have to keep trying to see whether it's possible. And at some point in the last years, my side stopped. Now I have to tell you, Scott, in all, in all candor, I don't believe that if Israel had a very left-wing government, we would have peace. We could have the most accommodating government, but you need to have a partner on the other side, and I don't believe we do. But again, that doesn't absolve my leadership of responsibility to keep. You have an incredibly uh, refreshing perspective uh, on all of this. Well, um, thank you. Uh, in your book, uh, you suggested creative ideas like both Israelis and Arabs compensating refugees on both sides, one of your you know, ideas that you put out there. Have, have your conversations with Palestinians given you any more ideas about creative solutions? I, I feel that on both sides, people are stuck right now. And what I'm hoping for is that the process that we've seen in the last few years, which isn't sufficiently appreciated uh, in the West, and that is large parts of the Arab world opening up toward Israel because of a shared fear of Iran. Uh, Israel and, and, uh, and Arab countries today have a common enemy, and that is an expansionist and imperial Iran. And this has created grounds for an unprecedented strategic relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, Egypt and Jordan, something is changing. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that what is today a purely strategic relationship can evolve into a political relationship. And we will then be able to bring in Arab countries into the peacemaking process, because this is a conflict that has to be solved here. It's not going to be solved outside region. Arabs and Jews need to figure out how we're going to live with this conflict, how we're going to navigate and, and make this situation livable for both sides. Mm. And so if we bring in the Arab countries, and I think we have a chance of convincing Israelis to make the following deal. And that is a Palestinian state in exchange for normalization, economic relations, diplomatic relations with the Arab world. The reason that I, that I, I believe in widening the, the range of peacemaking, twofold. First of all, because Palestinian, the Palestinian leadership has really nothing to offer Israel except promises. They can tell us, yes, we promise to, to make peace with you, and then we withdraw from the West Bank as we withdrew from Gaza in 2005. And then we'll find rockets and missiles falling on Tel Aviv the way we experienced after we withdrew from, from Gaza. And so the Israeli public, for good reason, does not trust the promises of Palestinian leaders. But if you bring in the Arab world as guarantors of a Palestinian state uh, as, and, and as offering Israel something very concrete, in exchange for territorial withdrawal, which is normalization with the Arab world, I think that's a deal that many Israelis would find very enticing. And the second reason why I believe we need to widen 
the lens is because this is not just a conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, even though it's very often portrayed that way in, uh, in, the, in the foreign media. This really is, a, is, is I would call this uh, a two-screen conflict. One, one side of the screen in Israeli heads, one side of the screen is Israel versus the Palestinians, and Israel is Goliath and the Palestinians are David. We have all the power. The other side of the screen is more complicated. Israel and the Arab and Muslim worlds. And then just look at a map and see a little sliver of Israel, which is so small that you can't fit the name Israel on the, on the map. It's, it's floating there somewhere in the Mediterranean. And then you see for thousands of kilometers around us, the Arab and Muslim worlds which until recently, until this new development, have been unremittingly hostile, not just to Israel's policies, to our existence, to our right to exist. And so Israelis have experienced this conflict as one side were Goliath, one side of the screen, the other side of the screen were David. In order to address the complexity of that picture, we need to involve the entirety of the Arab world. Also provide some accountability there too, if they're in. Uh, exactly, accountability, accountability. Is, is crucial. Crucial. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Just want to remind everybody, uh, just to put your questions in the Q and A box down there. If you have questions for our guest today, Yossi Klein-Levy, make sure you put those in the Q and A box. Uh, our last question before we go to audience questions here, Yossi, is. Um, how does Israel remain both a Jewish and a democratic state? Do you think that's an important question? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, we have two non-negotiable identities. My mind, non-negotiable. The first is that this is a country that sees itself as the organic continuity of 4,000 years of Jewish history, that sees itself responsible both to Jewish history, Jewish values, Jewish civilization, and the Jewish people, Jews around the world. If Jews are in trouble at any corner of the planet, they're, this is their, their fallback position. So in that sense, uh, the, the need to maintain a Jewish majority here, to my mind, is simply non-negotiable. At the same time, Israel was founded as a democracy. From day one, that is enshrined in our Declaration of Independence. It is enshrined in our basic laws in the Knesset. And the basic laws and the Declaration of Independence together have the legal weight of a constitution mm. in, say, in, in the US. Mm -hmm. And the cumulative message of these documents is that we are a Jewish majority state and we are a democratic state. If you take away either one of those identities, it is not Israel anymore. And so I am, as a citizen, I am deeply committed to strengthening the connection of the Jewish people with Israel and of Israel's connection with Jews around the world. And at the same time, I'm deeply connected to strengthening Israel as a democracy. The way that I would define Israel is, is in the following way. Israel is the state of all Jews, whether or not they are citizens of Israel. On some level, Israel is their homeland. 
And Israel is the state of all of its citizens, whether or not those citizens are all Jews. Very interesting. And that, to my mind, is the, is, that's the tension at the heart of Israeli identity. Really Hard is. identity to hold. Mm -hmm. But again, this is a really peculiar story. And peculiar stories have peculiar identities. And I'm going to write that down because that's a good line. That is a good line. <laughs> I look forward to seeing that in a future book there. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think so. I think so. I love that. I love that. Well, right, while you're writing it down, we've got some questions from, uh, from some of our viewers here today. Uh, so our first question comes from David. And David asks, could you tell us more about your work as an activist for reconciliation? And what does that role mean for you? And how do you walk that out? So the, um, this book that I wrote was, um, in some sense, a, a way for me to renew my outreach to Palestinians. Um, I had mentioned earlier this book that I wrote uh, about my journey into Palestinian Islam and Christianity. And that was a journey, that was a pilgrimage. I went into mosques, into, into monasteries, into churches, and learn to pray with, with Muslims, to meditate with Christian monastics. And that for me was really a, an attempt to see whether religion can be a basis for reconciliation. And what I've tried to do in this latest book is create a language, religious language for reconciliation. And to, how do you speak about peace in a religious context between Israelis and Palestinians, between Arabs and Jews, Muslims and Jews, uh, Christian Palestinians and, and Israeli Jews. So these are the multiple layers of conversation that I'm trying to navigate. I have a website called letterstomyneighbor.com. It's in English and in Arabic. And I post letters that I get from around the, uh, the Arab world because I see this I see my work not only involving Palestinians, I see it in the Arab world generally. Uh, my book was very favorably reviewed in the Saudi media, uh, in the Moroccan media, Egyptian uh, media has been a little, a little uh, more mixed, but there it is out there. And the other day, I, I, was I had a phone come, a WhatsApp conversation with a young woman in Iraq hmm. who read my book and, and we had a conversation about faith. She's a devout Muslim and we were talking about God. I'm sitting in Jerusalem, she's sitting in Baghdad. Now this is a new world. Uh, this has never happened before. We have the technology. And I think of this technology as, as an extraordinary blessing, as some, really a gift from God. And, and, you know, for me, interfaith and this new technology and this new kind of interaction like we're having now is the counterpoint to all of the horrors that are happening in the world. Uh, either either horrors that are created by human beings or horrors that are outside of our control. But there's a race going on. I, I feel a race happening within humanity 
um, between, on the one hand, all of these um, apocalyptic fears that we're, that, that we're all going through, and at the same time, these possibilities for transcendence that humanity has never had before. And so what being a reconciliation activist means to me is, first of all, taking responsibility for the conflict that I'm living. And taking responsibility means that I have a responsibility to humanity by to help heal one of, one of the deep conflicts of humanity. Hmm. That's my religious responsibility. And at the same time, I have a responsibility to, to navigate this conflict in a realistic way. That means to me two things. It means on the one hand, standing deeply and firmly within the legitimacy of my story, which is under increasing assault to protect the Jewish return home, to protect the country, not have wishful thinking, delusional thinking, to, to be able to frankly see threat when it rises and Israel faces numerous threats. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, to reach out to my neighbor, to take responsibility when I do something wrong, when my side commits the wrong, to try to, to find partners on the other side. Uh, but again, to do that in the context of a realistic, grounded approach, because I live in the most dangerous region on the planet. Mm. And I'm all alone here. It's just I'm the only Jewish state in this mm. region. And so on the one hand, peace, outreach, on the other hand, defense. Mm, thank you. Julie asks, what do you think is the most important thing to remember when communicating with someone who has a different cultural or spiritual worldview? Such great questions you guys are asking. The first thing is respect. And respect in two ways. First of all, respect yourself. Respect the integrity of your own faith. Respect the integrity of your story, your culture. And when you're coming from that place of self-respect, you can project respect outward. And if you don't love your own story, you're not going to be able to have deep empathy for And you know, in, uh, in the Bible, we have the very famous verse that we all quote, love thy neighbor as thyself. And we tend to emphasize the love thy neighbor, but the crucial phrase there is, there are two crucial phrases. One is love thy neighbor, but it's as yourself. The prerequisite for loving your neighbor is self-love. So Mm -hmm. self-protection you don't you know this is always the flaw of those who love humanity but don't necessarily love their own their own people their own country their own religion and and all genuine love all universal love begins with self-love love of yourself love of your, your your family your friends your society and, and love expands in concentric circles but it begins with a very specific point. And so love and respect. I find 
that when I sit with Palestinians, and we disagree about everything, but when you look someone in the eye and you listen, and you, and you, and you listen as deeply as you can, and you, and, you let, and you lower your guard in the sense that I'm, I know I'm going to hear things that are really going to upset me. Uh, this person's going to attack Zionism and going to attack Israel. But I'm going to listen, I'm going to suspend for a moment my, my anger, and I'm going to listen to that person's pain. Mm. And then I'm going to explain why what that person says is so painful for me. I'm going to tell you, when you tell me that I have no ancient roots in this land, when you tell me that the Holocaust never happened, and I hear that from Palestinians, I hear, you know, that's, I hear quite a bit. Hmm. That's very painful. But I'm going to sit there hmm. and I'm going to listen. And, I'm going to, and then I'm going to have that conversation. I'll tell you a quick story. I got an email a few months ago from a Palestinian in Ramallah, a guy who uh, was a, is a spokesperson for the Palestinian Authority. Sends me an eight-page email. Congratulations on a very successful work of propaganda. You and I both know that the story you're telling here about your people is a fiction. There never was an ancient Jewish presence in this land. There's no archaeological proof of that. And I'm thinking, you know, the archaeology comes out like every week there's some new archaeological finding. And then he says, uh, and the Holocaust couldn't possibly have happened the way the Jews aimed it did. It's going on and on like this for eight pages. And then at the very end of the letter, he writes, and in conclusion, I would be very happy to get together with you for, for a meal and to continue this conversation. So I wrote him. I wrote him back. I invited him to lunch. We went out to lunch in Jerusalem. And we really liked each other. We sat at the table. We looked at each other. And we realized this is a good guy. You know, but he was given a certain version of this conflict that he accepted as normative because that's the only version he ever heard. And he said to me at the end, he said, you know, when I look into your eyes, I see a man of truth. What he was really saying to me there was, I don't understand your narrative. It contradicts everything that I've ever heard from my side, but I know you're not lying to me. And so I have, to, I, I have to go back and try to figure this out. Mm. Extraordinary moment for me. Incredible. Incredible. Wow. Uh, Katie asks, uh, how, how have Jewish Israelis responded to your pluralistic take on the conflict? Well, it's a really good question. Uh, the book has just been translated into Hebrew. It has not yet come out in Israel. Okay. So for the most part, Israelis don't yet uh, know about the book. I suspect that um, the right will, uh, will dismiss it as naive or even um, self-feeding. And centrist Israelis, and that's the camp I come from, uh, centrist Israelis, I think, uh, may find it uh, useful. And I hope what, what, one of my purposes in this book is to try to give my camp, which is these of the political center in Israel, uh, a language for peacemaking, which on the one hand 
uh, affirms the legitimacy of our story, uh, is not naive about, about the dangers we face, is very wary uh, about uh, security, but on the other hand is willing to reach out. And that's the balance that this book has tried to, to model, and, uh, and I hope that that'll be useful. Mm. Uh, the last question we have uh, today is, what was the most impressive Palestinian Arab response that you've received? Uh, great question, great question. Well, a couple months after the book was published, a young Palestinian man came to see me at my office at the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, where, where I sit, and I didn't know him, about 28 years old. And he says to me, I read your, the translation book in Arabic, and then I read the English edition, and the Arabic translation is terrible. And he pulls out five pages of a sample translation that he had done. And he said, take this, show this around. And if people think it's good, I'll be happy to do a retranslation for you. So I showed it around. And people who know Arabic said it's terrific. So I hired him. He retranslated the book. And then I hired him to do social media outreach in Arabic. Hmm. And he's been, with, he's been working for the project for the last year, year and a half, anonymously. He's afraid to use his name. He's afraid of the reactions in Palestinian society. Physically afraid, actually sure. Sure. afraid. And he said to me when the book was, uh, when we published the book online with his translation, he said, you know, this is a very complicated moment for me. This is my first published work, and I can't put my name on it. Hmm. And it was very a very painful moment. Uh, he and I have become real partners in this project. And if any of you get the paperback edition of Letters, and if you are going to get the book, please get the paperback. That's, that's the edition, really, that has these Palestinian responses. You will see a response anonymously from the translator into Arabic. He wrote a terrific letter, a very poignant letter, uh, also about his pain at not being able to put his name on this book. And for me, that was really a, a profound moment because I'm a writer. I, I love to see my name in print. I mean, that's that's why one of the reasons why we write is this sense of of owning some little piece of of the public sphere. Absolutely. And uh, and he is denied that because of this conflict. Mm. So very painful. And at the same time, you think about the courage and the sacrifice and his dedication. And that has inspired me to to keep going despite the many difficulties and uh, the despair that one often feels. But when you meet people like that, you say, well, I'm, I'm in this for them. They're my partners. And whatever happens, 
these are the people I stand with. And this is my Palestinian Israeli world. That's mm. the world that I've been blessed to create, even though it's a small world. It's a microcosm of this conflict. That's the place where. Mm. Well, Yossi, your example of leadership and humility is an inspiration to us. We're so glad you could join us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. And just, I'm just so delighted to engage with all of you. I wish I could see you. wish I could meet you. So God willing, uh, that will happen. And uh, until then, uh, God be with you all. And same to you. And to our audience, thank you as well for joining us and engaging these difficult but important conversations. Uh, don't forget, next week we're going to be hosting author Daniel Gordis to discuss recent political developments in Israel, including the new government, peace plans, and Arab citizens. We hope you can join us. See you soon, and God bless. From Passages, this is Josiah McGee. If you have a topic you would love to dive deeper into, email me at josiah at passagesisrael.org for more information. Thanks for listening.